we've been talking about these heresies, and today's really can't technically qualify as a heresy. It's really more of a bad doctrine, and it goes under the word millenarianism, which is just way too fun to say. Millenarianism, it sounds like some sort of centipede or something like that, but millenarianism, I believe on your sheet I start off there right away uh, with what it is. Millenarianism is the combination of two Latin words, mille, meaning 1,000, and anus, meaning uh, one year or meaning year. Okay, so you have thousand years. So millenarianism is all about thousand year period. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be Christian. There are certainly millenarianism um, beliefs, cults, doctrines, all sorts of ideas out there before Christianity and even secular ones and even new age ones today and so forth. So it's not exclusively Christian, but we're, we're Christian, so we only care about the Christian ones this morning. So Christian millenarianism is defined then. Uh, i give you another definition from a Hebrew scholar. And uh, it is, um, is defined as religious movements that expect imminent, total, ultimate, this-worldly, collective salvation. Okay? There is this, yeah, it's a movement, and it's going to be an awesome, ultimate Immediate, momentary salvation. Um, and that scholar, she tends to leave off the ideas of how fast it's going to happen and who's in and who's out and so forth. So for our limited time this morning, uh, I will necessarily need to collapse many ideas about end-time doctrines that perhaps you heard growing up. By the way, like me growing up since I was, when I could even read or understand, how many grew up? in a church that talked about the rapture or the end times. Okay, so my estimation is about a third of us, okay? So the other two-thirds are going to be going, huh, I guess I heard about that. Uh, and then the other third of us, you guys are going to be all lit by the time I'm done. So, um, or you'll be like, yeah, that's right, or that guy's wrong. All right, so, and that's okay. Um, so we're going to collapse this all together. I'm going to smash together the idea of the rapture, premillennialism, postmillennialism, Jesus' return, new heaven, new earth, great tribulation, the apocalypse. All of this I'm going to lump together just because I don't have time to create an extensive three-year card catalog of everything that has to go on with this sort of thing, okay? So we've got about 30 minutes here, and that's all we get. And then after that, we're done. All right. So I'm going to put it all together here. So um, I'm going to give you then what I think is the way forward for Lakeland. I'm going to give you a little bit of prohibition. Don't do this around here. And then I'm also going to give you uh, what we should be doing. And I'm going to take that directly from the Bible here at the very end of the service today. So let's begin with some features of a millenarian movement before we go after some scriptures on it. So let's get an idea of what we're talking about. So here's sort of a bullet list of some things about millenarianism, okay? <clears throat> millenarianism always has the idea that there will be a total transformation of the world, that the earth and the heavens will be vaporized, be gone, and there'll be brand new ones put in their place, okay? The people will be transformed, most will be lost, and a few will be saved. There is going to be, therefore, a coming perfect world. It will be static or homeostatic. It will not need any improvement or change. It will all be complete. Okay? There will be a central role of a prophetic figure 
someone, sometimes a messianic figure, not Jesus, but someone like that, either an antichrist or perhaps some sort of prophet like an Elijah or John the Baptist or something that was going to tell us uh, who's in and who's out and that it's now time for the end is near, right? And uh, they will then decode and tell you when things are going to happen. That's what this prophetic person will do. There will also then be intense emotion felt by those who are swept up in the movements. These are very, very emotional, ecstatic type people. They are even hysterical sometimes in their cultures. They're, they have a prevalent feeling of personal guilt and inadequacy. There's the constant fear that you are not one of the chosen, not one of the remnant, not one of the 144,000 or whatever you ever heard. There is a complete rejection of the previous way of life. Oftentimes, especially when it moves into cults, you have to reject your family, you have to leave your job, all of that sort of thing. You go and live in the commune. There are long-established moral principles and standards of behaviors and customs are all abandoned in favor of new laws, new morals, and new rules are introduced. Marriages may be dissolved, new relationships, oftentimes sexual, are reinvented, and all of this sort of thing, okay? There is an expectation, expectations are so strong that normal productive activities, such as going to work and so forth, are abandoned. Property and livestock are destroyed because there will not be any need for them. There can even then move into illness is renounced, diseases are renounced, even if they are still there, they are then just ignored, because you're not going to need to worry about having surgery or anything like that because it's all going to come to an end pretty soon anyway. All right, so that's a bullet list on millenarianism. Now, here are some scriptures on millenarianism. I'm just picking out a few. And if you grew up with this, you're going to, be, you're going to get triggered and be doing a whole lot of yeah buts here to me in just a moment. All right, so here we go. Time for your triggering. Um, I grew up with this my whole life, so I know what, I, know what, I feel you. Right on this whole thing, all right? I'm with you on this whole thing. Okay, so here we go. Handful. First and foremost, the single reference for a thousand-year era, that's the millenarian, uh, there's a thousand-year era where Satan is bound, and those who had been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus, who did not have the mark of the beast, you know, that 666 thing that's in all the horror movies and all that, comes from Revelations chapter 20. And here's what it says. I have it on the piece of paper there for you, I do believe. Then, this is John writing his revelation. Then I saw thrones, and those seated on them were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Okay? This passage from Revelations, uh, John's Revelation, okay, it's the last book in the Bible, uh, and don't get too worked up if you're like, I've never read Revelations, I don't know, I, just, I started with Genesis, and I'm sorry I didn't finish, you know, so that's okay, it's, this book was late to be accepted in the canon of scripture, and it was sort of a like, yeah, okay, you know, uh, no one was real worked up about it, so don't get too worked up about it if you're not worked up about it. He's writing this, John is writing this in exile on the Isle of Patmos, uh, off the Greek islands there and so forth. And, um, and it's considered the genre of literature is called apocalyptic literature. It's about an apocalypse. 
This chapter speaks of Satan being locked up for a thousand years. Then chapter 20 declares that the beheaded righteous martyrs will rise first. The reign of, and they will reign as priests of Christ. After a thousand years, Satan will be let loose and then him and his minions are consumed by fire and Satan is thrown into a lake of fire forever. So keep in mind that nearly all of John's vision takes place in his real time. It is not a picture of the future. Only the last few uh, verses of the entire book are actually about the future, which is really interesting. And people don't understand or do believe this because they don't understand it's apocalyptic literature. Yeah, I know. I love the look. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it's not about the future. It's actually John seeing it as it's happening in heaven. It's real time. Okay? So this is, this is your first thing that needs to mess with you. So that's what's going on. And know this. This is the second part that should mess with you. John's original audience would have known exactly what John was talking about in 96 AD. They knew it was allegorical, that it was full of metaphors. They knew what the whore of Babylon was. They knew what the bowls were. They knew what the seals were. They knew what the dragon and the harlot and the whole thing were all about. They all were going, wink, wink. I get it. Uh-huh. This is sedacious literature written in code so John doesn't get, you know, killed real quick. And also so the, the document will get spread around without being yanked, which didn't help anyway because the Roman Empire was yanking scriptures out left and right and burning them. Okay, so scholars tell us that the year is 96 AD and the Roman emperor, emperor is Domitian. And Domitian, Emperor Domitian is Caesar is severely persecuting the struggling new church. You know, um, why were they being persecuted? Well, first, Christians did not believe in the Roman gods. They worshiped the one God of the Hebrews and his king, Jesus. And they considered him the one God. So since they didn't worship the Roman gods, you know, Jupiter and Apollo and Juno, you know, Juno, that, that's an insider joke for all you Juno. Juno's the name of a god, just for you guys, didn't you? All right, so, uh, and so they were called, the Christians were called atheists by the Roman Empire, all right? Uh, we call the Roman Empire polytheist, but, but they called us atheists. Second, the reason why they were persecuted is they didn't recognize Emperor Domitian as divine, and they refused to worship him. That's not going to go well. Third, the rank and file of the church were made up of the poor, the dregs of society, the infirm, the abandoned, the abused, the physically unfit, the diseased, and the leftovers of Roman society. If you would like to get rid of the tax burden, possibly crime, and whatever else, you just needed to go after the Christians and get rid of them, and you'll get rid of all the vermin in your culture, particularly around Rome. So that was an easy solution. Remember, there's not much compassion going on in the Roman Empire. It all belongs to the powerful. There is no thought of victimhood or anyone being treated well. That was fate, and you deserved it. And the sooner you get off the planet, or get under the planet, the better off for the rest of us. So that was an easy target for the Roman Empire to go after the Christians. So... Um, what happens then to these beheaded martyrs, okay, which is particularly gruesome, right? We would all agree with that. Well, they're given here in uh, Revelations, they're given a very special place of honor, a very special position in Christ's kingdom. They've been treated horribly. 
John's revelation made perfect sense to John's persecuted Christians. Dismemberment in ancient times was thought to be especially bad, and within Hebrew circles uh, is where we're getting this information, is because in the afterlife, you would be as you ended in your earthly life. You lose an arm, fine, you're in eternity with only one arm. Okay, lose your head, Uh uh-oh. That's not going to be good. So, what do you do? There's going to be special treatment for those who are beheaded. Okay? So, let's add another popular end times Bible passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But I do not want you to be uninformed. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul writing. I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who, have, who do not have hope, have no hope. Why is this being written? Check me on this. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, for those who have died. This is about those who have died. Don't, and I don't want you to grieve. You should have hope. Got it? That's very important. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay. This passage is not apocalyptic literature like Revelations. This is an epistle. Epistle is a fancy word for letter, all right? And it's a letter written to an entire group, not just necessarily to one person. So this is Paul's first letter. It may very well be the very first letter in the, in the entire New Testament, scholars think. Uh, Paul's first letter to the little Asia Minor church that's in Thessalonica, all right? In the letter, there is no lake of fire, there are no dragons, there is a trumpet of God, and there are dead believers starting, well, they're starting to die. Christians are starting to die. Natural causes, right? As well as persecution, of course. This letter is written between the late summer of 50 AD and the spring of 52 AD. There's a window there, just around 50 AD, 51 AD. It's been 20 years since Jesus walked with his disciples. All 12 disciples are still alive. Jesus said he would return, and Jesus states, stated, as Jesus stated in John's Gospel, chapter 14. So John chapter 14, another famous millenarian verse, passage. <clears throat> Do not let your heart be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I... I would I, have told, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you will be also, and you may be also. Jesus is coming again. Amen? Amen. But when? Who knows? Paul's letters uh, show that those first followers of Jesus needed to be informed about those who had died. This was the unusual thing that was going on. What are we going to do about our brothers and sisters in Christ that are dying? Was Jesus supposed to return? And he hasn't come back, but they have died. Logical problem to have. 
Paul writes this, so they don't grieve. He's trying to come up with the answer for the thing. Once again, like John's revelation, those who have died get special treatment. All right, so here we go. For this we declare, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, moving on, all right. For this we declare that, um, declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. Get the arrangement? Those who've died already are first, first in line. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. What happens then when modern-day Christians, or at least Christians from the last couple of hundred years, combine and conflate Paul's first letter, 1 Thessalonians, with John's apocalyptic literature from Revelations 20. What happens when those are not distinguished as genres of literature and are treated as simply some sort of idea of the word of God? Well, if you were around in 1829 and your name happened to be Edward Irving and you're living in Great Britain and you were a fundamentalist pastor you, you borrowed Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible from the 4th century, which we all now know as the Latin Vulgate, really the first non-Greek translation of the Bible. And you would translate Paul's Greek usage of the word, the harpasekometheka, how's that for you? Which takes from the infinitive, this is only for Garrett, uh, taken from the infinitive harpazo, you know, it's a future <laughs> indicative. So. All right, thanks Garrett. Um, so that word that gets translated into the English will be caught up or seized or snatched, which in the Latin Vulgate is translated rapto. And you will invent the concept of rapture when you uh, make it English, okay? Which means the true believers will be caught up, seized, snatched, or whatever, into heaven, and it is in the future tense, will be when Christ returns. Edward Irving's doctrine probably uh, wasn't that big of a deal. He had a pretty strong following. He was very popular, a very compelling preacher. And it probably then influenced another Brit named John Nelson Darby. By the way, the brethren are followers of Darby. Darby invents or takes to the extreme the idea of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is seven different dispensations of God's grace. It also then, in his Darby's dispensationalism, is a pre-tribulation rapture doc doctrine, which is highly popularized, popularized a few decades later as it becomes part of a Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. My mother had a, Rofield's, a Schofield Reference Bible. That's what we had in the house. In Schofield's Reference Bible is a device called a chain reference. And some of you probably sitting here this morning may have a chain reference Bible. You understand that the chain reference is not a divine instrument. It is somebody, the publisher, the author, decided to link and reference on their own various passages. In the Schofield Reference Bible, it is a dispensational Bible under Darby. So all of this rapture idea and all these dispensations gets highly popularized in 1909 to about 1920. Everyone has a Schofield Reference Bible. 
okay? It's all over America. The Schofield Bible, with its chain references, links various ideas in the Bible together, irregardless of biblical genre, time. Old Testament is put together with New Testament. Revelations is put together with gospel. It's all just a big mishmash, okay? So in our case, this links John's revelation with all sorts of other Bible verses, and it creates this entire doctrine that is biblical. Yeah, it's in the Bible. The dead in Christ rise first, verse 16. Then those very tiny few who happen to be alive are caught up with Christ when he returns. That's the rapture. It's a very, very select few. They're the only ones that are alive when Christ returns. Okay? Everyone else has died. Now, if you want to be some of those tiny few who happen to be here when Jesus returns, then you better manufacture an entire secret prophetic return date for Jesus because you're going to need to know and be ready when the end comes. This is exactly what all of these sects and cults have done. The Millerites from that time, 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, <clears throat> the Millerites, following uh, Edward Miller, said that October 22nd, 1844 was going to be the end of the world. And just to show you this collapsing of various ideas of Scripture, Miller takes the um, Persian emperor, uh, what's his name? Artaxerxes, I only read it, I, have to, I never pronounce it when I'm reading the Bible. Artaxerxes, and he is, according to Miller, um, saying that there's going to be 2,300 days of his reign. And he says this in 457. You really should be like doing furrowed brow right now. This is a perfect furrowed brow moment. Like, what the? 457 BC is when Artaxerxes makes his proclamation to Nehemiah, go and rebuild the temple of God. Well, we all know 2,300 days of Artaxerxes' reign is actually 2,300 years, and that was in 457. So that means that it's going to end in 1844, which is very convenient since Miller's alive at that time. He can tell everybody this. There then is categorically in Wikipedia something called the Great Disappointment of 1844, and I believe it happened on October 23rd. Of course, all of these cults uh, and beliefs and doctrines then typically always will default to it happened in the heavenlies in a heavenly realm. And it just wasn't here, like, which is, always ends up being very convenient. <clears throat> the Jehovah's Witnesses said the world was going to end in 1914. David Koresh's Branch Davidians thought surely they would be included in the 144,000 faithful remnant, 74 Branch Davidians burned to death, in April 19, 1993, in Waco, Texas. Edgar C. Wisenant staked his life. He wished that there was actually a king or an emperor who could put him to death for, for making false accusations, but there wasn't one. Because Wisenant staked his entire life on the rapture occurring in 1988, and he gave 88 reasons in 1988. And he gave 89 reasons in 1989. And I don't know how many reasons he gave when he said it was going to come in 1993, in 1994, 1997. You get the idea. It did, the rapture did occur. It happened for one individual in 2001 when he died. Okay, and he was taken to heaven. That's great. 
I'm making that up. That is not really the rapture. Why is millenarian doctrine bad? You can tell my position on it by my pejorative tone. First off, first point, millenarian doctrine is bad because it's a poor understanding of how to read the various genres within the Bible. This has nothing to do with the Bible being the infallible word of God. This has something to do with how you would read an ancient text that we all believe is inspired by the, by the Spirit of God. Poor readers conflate and compress the letter of 1 Thessalonians 4, chapters 4 and 5, with Revelations 20. The, the letters of 2 Peter, 1 Corinthians 15, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, Old Testament minor prophets, Joel 28 through 32, your young men will see visions, all of these sort of passages. It all just gets wadded in to one sort of like it was this monolithic, unified, genericized thing called the Word of God. It's as though it was all written by one person out of one pen in one sitting, the whole big black book. What you do have is someone like Edward Miller or any of the rest of these people actually reading the book like that 2,000 years later, reading it as it's one. That's true. But the Bible wasn't written that way. So... When you put it all together like this, it looks like you can become a master of Scripture because you can find relationships, chain references, between all the various passages and create theologies and doctrines. But combining Paul's letter uh, to the Thessalonians with John's revelation is poor Bible skill. This combines a passage about how to conduct one's normal life, which is in 1 Thessalonians, with a highly allegorical apocalyptic text about navigating and subverting the principalities of the Roman Empire for the sake of the kingdom of God. Do not confuse and conflate various unconnected passages of the Bible to create and support a doctrine that was not there in the first place. And now I'm quoting. It's on your piece of paper. The problem for many evangelicals, this is a commentary quote, the problem for many evangelicals who at least desire coherence in sacred scripture, if not inspiration or infallibility, is that the texts in the Bible relating to the end times are numerous, scattered, and not especially coherent. So pulling them together to make a biblical doctrine, the very acme or pinnacle of evangelicalism, is a tricky task. This is a recent invention, everyone, the last couple hundred years where the Bible has been read like this. Now, here's a quote um, from a page that I looked up, and there are many of them out there, and you can get on the web and look these up. I just assume you're not, but yeah, if you must. This one's called The Rapture uh, Room. Rapture page, Rapture Room. They had a lot of different names. This is uh, by a guy um, named Ron, and he's an accountant. The Holy Bible is symmetric, Unitarian document. Some of this is shown through the parables, patterns, designs found in God's word. There is more to the Bible than meets the eye. The creator of the universe has placed pictures, foreshadows, acrostic designs, and even codes in his holy word. Our purpose is to open your eyes to the deeper meaning, meanings and wonder of the word. There's secret stuff there. He knows it. And you don't. And so you better read his website. Why is millenarian doctrine bad? Point two, doctrine is unknowingly influenced by social conditions 
for the end of the world cults. Unknowingly influenced, there is societal, sociological, psychological stuff going on. Social change can create conditions for apocalyptic beliefs and needs. The Industrial Revolution of the 19th century, particularly in Great Britain, and in, mostly in Europe, because in America we were kind of keeping up with it, you know. But the Industrial Revolution spawned more millenarian cults than at any other time. The world was changing. People were moving from the countryside into these huge metropolitan areas like London. Um, children were being alcoholics, drinking gin. Mothers were abandoning their children. It, I mean, cats and dogs living together. It was mass chaos going on in the Industrial Revolution. People got commodified. They became a number. They became a time and a dollar. You no longer were um, Bill Smith, you know, the Smith who did smithing work. You were now just employee number one, two, three. Identity shift was going on, okay? And this then, sociologists tell us, creates great amount of despair. There is something then called status inconsistency. Status inconsistency is a sociological term that says when there is major shift going on in a culture, people realize they are hopeless and they lose their identity and they will grasp for some sort of steady solution to everything. What we need is a world that will not change. All of our pain and anguish and our loss and our poverty will all disappear and everything is perfect. Just like what was going on in the Industrial Revolution. Now, this is as an aside. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, you know, of communist fame, Communist Manifesto. That's written in about 1845, 1849. <clears throat> they discounted Christianity. They atheist. Communism is atheist. They discounted Christianity as nothing but as a millenarian cult. And end times a static cult. And he thought, that's why they're going all around Asia Minor back in those days preaching the gospel. is Because they're simply running around saying the world's going to end, the world's going to end, the world's going to end. That's how they just surmised the New Testament. Very narrow, wrong interpretation of the New Testament. And I'm, we're going to get to that at the very end of service. Later on in 1900, Albert Schweitzer, another German scholar, uh, said exactly the same thing. That... Christianity is nothing more than an apocalyptic millenarian cult, okay? And uh, that's why they're all frantic and freaked out. And, of course, Schweitzer um, said that Jesus failed and that he was crushed upon the wheel of time. You know, he was an apocalyptic prophetic figure, but since he didn't rise again, said Schweitzer, then all is lost. All Schweitzer did say, by the way, you know, this is the famous Dr. Schweitzer, you know. All he did say is that he said, um, well, Jesus was still a good moral example, and we all need to be like Jesus, even if he's not alive. So we should all, so he became a doctor. We should all do good. Okay. So, end of the world cults then uh, are influenced by sociological conditions and political and economic. Okay? Third thing then, why is millenarian doctrine bad? It's escapist, it's uncaring, it's disconnected, and it's judgmental of the world. And Christians are not called to be uncaring, disconnected, escapist, and judgmental of the world. If one really believes that millenarianism is just around the next corner, and that before too long, 
this is quoting, Roman Catholicism and apostate Protestantism will unite and with the aid of the government of the United States of America bring in a national Sunday law in an effort to flush out the people of God. Surely one should, be, should spend one's time telling people to get ready for it rather than wasting time building hospitals and establishing schools. Earthquakes should be greeted not with humanitarian aid but rather with a resounding we told you so. Can you see then in modern time where preppers, white supremacy, in time people, survivalists, all can then say we are Christian. You, you, put in, you connecting the dots here? Because it's all going to burn anyway. Conclusion. Jesus Christ will return. We know this. Amen? We do not know when. We do not know where. We do not really know who is in and who is out. We don't really know much, but Christ will return. What we do know is what Paul told the church in Thessalonica. He says this in chapter 4, verse 3. Sanctify yourselves, abstain from fornication, control your body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion. Do not wrong or exploit a brother or sister. Love one another, live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands, behave properly toward outsiders, and be dependent on no one is what it's saying there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Does this sound like Albert Schweitzer and Marx and Engels? Does this sound like an apocalyptic group? This sounds like some really boring Presbyterians. <laughs> this sounds like Christians sitting around saying, like, mind your own affairs. Don't depend on anybody. Don't sit around and, you know, go beating everybody up for a loan when you're not working. Take care of things. Stop watching Game of Thrones because it's way too lustful and passionate. I'm just making that up. Uh, really, you should stop watching. <laughs> you know, stop. Do, yeah, stop it. And behave yourselves. If the New Testament was this apocalyptic, millenarian, frenetic cult, would they be saying things like this? They'd be saying, sharpen your swords, man. No, Paul's saying like, hey, hey, everybody go to work today. Yeah. We're going to end the service uh, with a benediction. We're going to do the Lord's table. So if servers want to come forward now, that'd be great. We're going to end the service reading the entire chapter of 1 Thess Thessalonians chapter 5. It is the rapture chapter. But what I'd like, and I'll remind you again, but what I'd love to remind you of is how mundane and normal the life looks like in the early church. And they thought it was worth dying for. 